to distinguished guests and dear friends all, good afternoon. I'm Anne-Marie Schwertleck, the Library's Director General, and it's my enormous pleasure to welcome you to the National Library of Australia. As we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land. I thank their elders, past and present, for caring for this land that we are now privileged to call home. The National Library stands on the shoulders of inspired, passionate individual collectors. Edward Augustus Petherick, Sir John Ferguson, Sir X Nan Cavell, amongst them. And I would include Jose Maria Braga on that list, and we are delighted to have you with us to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the library's acquisition of the Braga Collection. Jose Maria Braga was a businessman, teacher, and author based in Macau, who wrote numerous books and articles about this Portuguese settlement. While his collection is interested in the international influence of the Portuguese, its focus is on Macau, Hong Kong, China, and Japan. The greater part of his library of books, of manuscripts, of pictures, newspapers, and journals was acquired by the National Library in 1966. Today's event was inspired and it was made possible by the Embassy of Portugal. We are grateful to the Embassy and especially to His Excellency, Mr. Paulo Cunha Alves, for his passionate and his practical support over quite a long time in the planning and the presentation of today. And so I would like you to please join me in welcoming the ambassador to the podium. Madam Director General, Ambassadors, High Commissioners, ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great pleasure to be here today on the momentous occasion of the 50th uh, anniversary of the purchase of the Braga Collection by the National Library of Australia. José Maria Braga was a Portuguese businessman based in Macau in the first quarter of the 20th century. During his lifetime, he showed a keen interest in multifarious fields, having at different periods been a journalist, a teacher, and a writer. He wrote numerous articles in journals in Macau, Hong Kong, and Shanghai on the history of Macau and on the role of the Portuguese in its development. He was also a prolific publisher of books touching upon the lands of the Far East and its first interactions with the West. Throughout his life, and as a result of his studies, experiences, and voyages, José Maria Braga managed to build up a rich and varied library of books, manuscripts, maps, pictures, and newspapers, amounting to around 6,000 monographs and other materials that today belong to the National Library of Australia, a small but significant part of which we will be able to see later today. 
The interests of José María Braga were wide, covering the presence of the Portuguese in Asia, as well as the whole sphere of Portuguese influence in the world in the period of the maritime expansion in the 15th and 16th centuries. Particularly well documented are the accounts of Portuguese voyages that allowed the spread of the knowledge in shipbuilding and related sciences. These travels were the precursor to the following voyages of Christopher Columbus and Vasco da Gama that made possible the subsequent discovery of the sea routes and the mapping of half of the world. The legacy left behind by this extraordinary historian constitutes an invaluable contribution for the mutual knowledge between West and East and to the field of historical investigation of the Portuguese presence in the Far East, lands united to Portugal from the past and we hope will continue united to us in the future. Before concluding, I would like to thank the members of the National Library of Australia, the administration for the close cooperation they extended to the Embassy of Portugal in putting together this showing and this conference. These events would also not have been possible without the precious support of Camões Institute in Lisbon. And last but not least, a special token of appreciation to both lecturers, Jorge de Santos Alves and Stuart Braga, for being with us today and enlighten the audience on the subject matter. Allow me now to introduce Professor Jorge Santos Alves, currently Associate Professor at the Faculty of Human Sciences, Catholic University of Portugal in Lisbon, and coordinator of the Consortium of Asian Studies. He is a senior researcher at the Center for the Study of Communication and Culture since 2006, visiting fellow at the University of Macau. Professor Santos Alves is also vice president of the Portuguese-Indonesian Association for Friendship and Cooperation. His interests, as far as teaching and research are concerned, are mainly focused on Asian studies, namely the history of the Southeast Asia in the pre-colonial period, the history of China and Macau, as well as Portuguese-Chinese relations. More recently, his academic endeavors have taken him towards the study of Islamic networks in the Indian Ocean in the 17th century. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for your attention, and please welcome Professor Jorge Santos Alves. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. First of all, let me uh, start by saying how grateful I am for this invitation to be here at the National Australian National Library. 
I would like to thank, of course, Madam Director General. Uh, I would like to thank also the Portuguese Embassy and uh, His Excellency the Ambassador Paulo Cunha Alves and uh, also the Camões Institute for his uh, support to this uh, initiative and to this event. And let me also make a uh, personal uh, thank to uh, Catherine Favell from National Library of Australia for all the uh, huge amount of arrangements she has done and those arrangements made it possible for me to be here with you uh, this uh, uh, evening. So for this uh, uh, afternoon's uh, uh, lecture, I was, um, I thought of uh, presenting you the uh, Brother collection in uh, relation to what I consider to be Macau as one of the most fascinating examples of an international report at work. And I should say an international report, but a different international report. Because in Asia, from 16, 17, 18, 19th centuries, we see a lot of ports everywhere in Southeast Asia, in uh, the South, uh, South China Sea, everywhere. But in fact, Macau had uh, some uh, identities and some uniqueness that needs to be stressed. And that's something that I would like you to uh, follow me for the next 45 minutes in order to see how uh, intelligence gathering was absolutely decisive. And it is, by the way, still also today, absolutely decisive for the survival of Macau as, as I used to say, an Eurasian project of international port. And it is very clearly shown in the Brother collection that we have here in the uh, National Library of Australia. So let us start to, by making a short summary of what is expecting you for the next 45 uh, uh, minutes. First of all, I will present you a very briefly, very uh, general presentation of the Portuguese in Asia, the Portuguese presence in Asia, by uh, stressing the two patterns that in fact um, divide this presence. The first one is what I, I call the empire. Let's use other words, the official presence in Asia. And the second one, I copy the expression that uh, is authored by my uh, colleague, my American colleague, George Winius, is the shadow empire. That means the private, uh, the non-official initiative of the Portuguese presence in uh, Asia. This ranges between the 16th and the 19th century, by the way, let me remind you this. The second point will be on Macau, an international port at work. The third one will be on Macau and intelligence gathering. The fourth one will be on, finally, the broader collection in the National Library of Australia, and then back to Macau at work. And some final remarks just to leave you with four or five main topics of my uh, lecture. I would like you also to, uh, and I give you 10 seconds, not more than that, just to remind you the geography of Asia, because, I mean, it's something incredibly difficult for us everywhere, anywhere we are in the world, to, rem to have the, the whole map of Asia in our mind, in our mindset. And in fact, as you can see, basically the Portuguese presence in Asia ranged, as uh, the ambassador was saying uh, a few minutes ago, from the, uh, the whole of the Indian Ocean to the, the China Sea and the Japan archipelago. But in fact, it started a little bit uh, further west. 
and it started in the uh, west coast, the east coast of, uh, of Africa, what we usually call the Swahili coast, because in fact it's so much, uh, it has so much of Asian element in this region and so many cultural, religious, political, economical contexts that when we go to the east coast of Africa, somehow we feel that we are already, there is a kind of a Asian taste, of Asian flavor everywhere in this part of the world. So the Portuguese present that we are going to listen in the next 45 minutes, it's absolutely uh, overwhelming in terms of uh, geographical uh, context. Ten seconds are over. Now, <laughs> let's uh, to try to simplify, and I hope that I will not oversimplify, but in any case, let's start by uh, analyzing very briefly the uh, two uh, patterns of the Portuguese expansion that I mentioned to you uh, minutes ago. So, when we look at the Portuguese presence in Asia in between the 16th and the 19th century, what we do have, in fact, it's on one hand the empire or the official uh, enterprise, and on the other hand, we have the shadow empire. And I mean by shadow empire, the private, mainly, and as I would say, growingly, Eurasian enterprise. And I say Eurasian from the point of view that, in fact, Till the mid-16th century, what we have, it's basically Portuguese people coming from Portugal. But after the middle of the 16th century, you see a growing number of people that claim themselves to be Portuguese, but in fact they are uh, sons of Portuguese men and uh, of their marriages or uh, unions with Asian women. Chinese, Japanese, Malay, Indian, Japanese, Javanese, everywhere in Asia. And so, in fact, this group that, by the way, will be extremely present in Macau, it's absolutely decisive for the survival of this uh, shadow empire. And there is, also to make things a little bit more clear, a kind of a geographical frontier between these two uh, patterns of the portraits present in Asia. And once again, you have the map in there. The, uh, this frontier is more or less the Cape Comorin, which is the, the, the further south... Uh, tip of the Indian subcontinent, more or less in between the Maldives and uh, Sri Lanka. And in fact, when we look west, we see the Portuguese crown, the Portuguese fleets, we see the Portuguese fortresses, we see the Portuguese factories, but all of them belonging to the king of Portugal. Or for that short period in which there were two crowns and one king, the king of Spain, 1580-1640. In fact, this is the, if you see, this is the set, this is the scenario for the Portuguese official presence in Asia. When we look east of the Cape Comorin, in fact, this is truly the uh, scenario, the geographical scenario for this shadow empire of private, of Eurasian uh, enterprises. Let's see uh, a little bit with more detail the first pattern, the imperial pattern of the uh, Portuguese presence in Asia. Of course, the representation of the Portuguese king in Asia is the Estado da India, in free translation, the state of India. We have a governor or a viceroy, depending on the, uh, uh, on the king's choice, that is settled in, uh, in Goa, and he is, in fact, the head, the representative of the king of Portugal. And Goa was settled as a capital in 1510, 
And then we have several other important positions from the King of Portugal, ranging in between the Persian Gulf, or Muj, in 1508, Malacca, 1511, and Cochin, 1503. I would like to stress Malacca, because Malacca is extremely important for several reasons. Malacca, it's not only the key of the Malacca Straits, which is, by the way, even in our days, an extremely important highway for the maritime connections between the Asian world and Asia and the rest of the world. But in this period of the early 16th century, Malacca was truly, I was going to say, the window. But in fact, it's not the window, it's not the door, it's a gate to the Chinese market. And so everyone who wants to trade with China, of course afterwards with Japan, would have to go through Malacca. And so that means that when the Portuguese conquered Malacca in 1511, in fact, they got immediately access to the Chinese markets. And China was, no doubt about it, the major market that one could hope to have and to find in, uh, already in these days in, uh, uh, in the Asian uh, context. And if you, want me, uh, if you ask me to choose a book that could uh, somehow represent this official vision of the Portuguese expansion, of this empire of the Estado de India, of the King of Portugal, of course, that book would have to be the most famous uh, Lusiades, the Lusiades, written, as you all know, for sure, by the immortal Portuguese poet Luís de Camões. On the other hand, if you look at the settled uh, pattern of the Portuguese expansion, this so-called uh, shadow empire, once again I remind his name, George Winnie's, an amazing American historian of the Portuguese presence in Asia. We see several in that area. Uh, well, the map is no longer here. Let me go back to the map once again. All that area of the Bay of Bengal, of the uh, Malay and Indonesian archipelago, the uh, South China Sea. We see a lot of Portuguese uh, settlements. In Urli, in Nagapatan, in uh, Makassar, in Sulawesi, nowadays Indonesia in Nagasaki in Japan, although Nagasaki with a twist, because uh, this uh, shadow empire has uh, different um, features, and the case of Nagasaki is extremely interesting, because for the first time in history, uh, a Japanese daimyo, a Japanese warlord, gave Nagasaki, the, let's say, the leasing of the port of Nagasaki to the Society of Jesus and the Jesuits, who of course uh, grabbed the opportunity uh, without any hesitation, with the political uh, knowledge and the political sensitivity that they have, had a lot of difficulties to explain the King of Portugal and to explaining to Rome how come that uh, Japanese uh, daimyo offered them, after the Society of Jesus, the exploration of a port. And in fact, the management of a port is lasted for uh, more or less 20 years. But once again, it's a very interesting case. But one way or the other, Urli, Nagapatinan, Matasar, Nagasaki lasted for 20, 30, 50, 100 years at the most. But the case of Macau was absolutely different from all the others. And so the Portuguese settled more or less around 1555, 1557. The dates are not completely clear up until now. And if you want me to, if you ask me to look for a book that could somehow show all this, uh, how the Shadow Empire worked, how this uh, Portuguese presence, growingly Eurasian presence in Asia, it could be described, could be analyzed, could be, uh, in a way, it's a kind of a, a, an instant picture of what was going on 
with the Portuguese and with this shadow empire. By the mid-16th century, of course, that book would have to be the travels of Fernão Mendes Pinto. And nowadays we know, fortunately, because until, let's say, 10 years ago, we always thought, and we, it's, it was always said, that the book by Fernão Mendes Pinto was an amount of lies and fantasies and so on. But nowadays we know that the travels of Fernão Mendes Pinto, after all, it's not only extremely important to study, to analyze, to understand the, uh, uh, sh the Shadow Empire, but it's most significantly important to understand Asian history by the mid-16th century. The insight that Fernomich Pint presented to us, and I'm telling you with this with the, uh, absolutely certainty that a group of, let's say, 40 international scholars have run through the whole text and have uh, nowadays discovered that more or less between 80 and 85% of what's in the book is absolutely sure and correct from the historical, the geographical, the economical, the political, the religious point of view. So this Peregrina uh, Sound is the travels in a free translation of uh, Fernão Mendes Pinto is, of course, an amazing book that uh, is perhaps the best one that we could show as an example for uh, kind of an X-ray of this uh, shadow empire by the mid-16th uh, century. So let's take the example of Macau. That's, in fact, what brings us here this uh, afternoon. And let's move on to the second uh, topic of my lecture, Macau, an international port at work. And the Portuguese, let me remind you that the Portuguese settled around 1555, 1557. One of the things that has changed in the last years in Portuguese historiography, uh, allow me this uh, footnote, is the fact that uh, uh, until, let's say, the late 1990s, Portuguese historians used to work all by themselves. And all of a sudden, by the end of the 1990s, the Portuguese historians do, in fact, uh, work together with, uh, for instance, Chinese historians, uh, Japanese historians, uh, well, Asian historians, and that allowed us to, give, to have access to local sources. And that changes a lot in the perspective in the way that we analyze, that we study the Portuguese uh, presence in Asia, and namely in the uh, case of uh, Macau. And so up until a couple of years ago, everyone said that Macau was founded by the Portuguese in 1555, uh, 1557, as if nothing existed there, and all of a sudden the Portuguese arrived and create an international port. Now we know not only by the archaeologists that it existed that it dates back to the Neolithic, but more recently that by the, uh, the beginning of the Ming Dynasty in the 14th century, it was a fisherman's port, and that by the early 15th century, it was already a kind of a port of call on transit to the uh, international port of uh, Canton or Guangzhou in order to access to the imperial uh, court in uh, Beijing. So, in fact, what the Portuguese uh, did was to uh, follow the steps of Asian traders that was going to do trade in China. And in fact, they followed specifically, and now we know their names, thanks to the uh, Chinese colleagues, the uh, overseas Chinese that were trading, that were settled in Southeast Asia, and all of a sudden were interested in trading with the Portuguese, and so they bring them to Macau. And so since the very beginning, Macau is, an, let's say, a Sino-Portuguese project, broadly speaking, an 
Eurasian project because it deals with Indians, with Japanese, with Malays, with uh, uh, Arabs, with uh, Chinese, and basically Chinese and Portuguese, and basically overseas uh, Chinese. One of interesting scenes of Macau is that up 1846, and I will explain it later on this, uh, why this year appears in the uh, PowerPoint, Macau enjoyed a, an, a, an enormous amount of political and administrative autonomy. In fact, although the Portuguese crown nominated a, for the first time a governor and a captain general in 1615, uh, in fact, that didn't work uh, as the Portuguese crown thought, and the major uh, political institution in uh, Macau was what we call in Portuguese the Senado da Câmara, in English, the uh, uh, Municipal Council, or the Leal Senado afterwards. But there are other institutions in Macau that guaranteed this autonomy. On one hand, we had the Holy House of Mercy, the Misericordia, in 1569. The Holy House of Mercy, as of course this uh, worked as a hospital, worked in order of social assistance, but also as a kind of a bank in which uh, the money would be invested and then borrowed uh, to, the, uh, uh, to the merchants. And so it has this triple function that uh, uh, was extremely important for the development of Macau. We had the diocese in 1576, and here it comes, the municipal council, the Senado da Câmara, in 1582. And in fact, it was the Senado da Câmara who manages everything, and especially manages the relation with the Chinese authorities. The Senado da Câmara had one of his members who was a Mandarin in the uh, official rankings of uh, China. And it was him, dressed like a Mandarin, would approach and would ne negotiate daily with the Chinese authorities, both from uh, Guangzhou, from uh, Canton, and from uh, Beijing. Then we had the Chinese merchants and investments, and this was absolutely decisive for the uh, growing of Macau and for the consolidation of Macau as a Sino-Portuguese project and as a private uh, um, as an Eurasian port uh, throughout uh, the times. And then we have the Society of Jesus, which had an amazing uh, role and an extremely important role in Macau. The Jesuits acted not only as priests, I would say basically not as priests, they acted as political counselors, as translators, as diplomats, and as scientists. And so they acted not only in China, nearby in the in the uh, province of Guangdong, but mainly they acted starting at the end of the 16th century in the central court in Beijing. And so, in fact, all the contacts, all the, let's say, the Macau affairs that had to be dealt with the, with the emperor were dealt by the uh, Jesuits. And, in fact, it was them who acted as diplomats uh, for the Macau affairs in the imperial court in uh, um, Beijing. And now let me show you a few uh, images that I think and I hope that uh, somehow represent the true essence of Macau and how this Macau as a Sino-Portuguese project was absolutely uh, working up until 1846. I remember, now I have to explain you the date, 1846. 1846, well, two dates then, sorry about that. First one, 1842, it's the date of the foundation. This is the foundation of Hong Kong, as you know. On the, uh, on the aftermath of the First Opium War, as you know, the Chinese were uh, forced to give Hong Kong to the British. 
And in fact, the foundation of Hong Kong in 1842 was a terrible blow for the economical life of Macau. And so what the Portuguese crown in Lisbon decided was to transform, for the first time in fact, Macau in a colony, which Macau never was. And so they sent uh, a governor called Ferreira do Amaral, who would have to, uh, with special powers, in order to uh, set apart the Leal Senado, the, the municipal council, and all the powers that the municipal council had, especially the relation with the Chinese, would pass to the hands of the, of the governor. And so uh, that was, by the way, a totally missed opportunity because uh, uh, Ferreira do Amaral ended up dead, killed, uh, three years ago, two years later on, in uh, 1849, he was beheaded by uh, some champions because there was a lot of conflicts in the frontier and so on, and so things did not work. And when uh, Ferdinand Amaral died, in fact, Macau returned to the old way uh, of dealing with the Chinese, and once again, all the powers were held to the uh, uh, municipal council's hands. So I will now close this footnote just to explain the date of 1846. But Generally speaking, the idea of these three images is to show you this one is from the uh, view of Macau from the late 17th century. Something that was in a, uh, it's an image that it's a piece that it's in a private collection in Lisbon. No one has ever seen it until a couple of years ago and all of a sudden, I was discussing this yesterday with the ambassador. This is some of, some of the treasures which we can find still in Portuguese private collections. And this view of Macau that I used in a, in a in an exhibition that I commissioned a couple of years ago in Lisbon, shows something of a, a, a city that uh, has that uh, special atmosphere of half uh, Chinese in architecture, half uh, European. The second image that uh, I would like to show, it's a Sino-Portuguese map of the Macau Peninsula made in 1678. And uh, this uh, image, uh, this map of Macau was to be shown, was to be offered, to uh, Kangxi Emperor uh, for, uh, by a diplomatic mission sent uh, uh, from Macau. And uh, the uh, general idea was to say, okay, uh, your highness, don't worry, because Macau is such a small thing, a few houses and uh, nothing less, uh, nothing more than that. So don't worry about Macau because it can be managed, no problem. And it's, by the way, we have a Chinese fortress very near to the borders and so don't worry. So this is a construction if you say, if you want to use the word, but I mean, it's an amazing construction. And in fact, this uh, diplomatic mission of Macau uh, had uh, two other important uh, features. The first one was that it, it brought a fate letter by the King of Portugal to the Chinese emperor. Together with the, with the Jesuits, they fate the letter, they forged the letter, so it was a fate letter. And the second thing is that due to the intelligence gathering of the Jesuits, the uh, Municipal Council of Macau knew uh, that uh, the emperor and uh, the Yan princes would love to see an African lion. And so they uh, ordered to buy a lion in Mozambique, and they shipped it from Mozambique to Goa, from Goa to Macau, and then the lion was together uh, with the, the, the diplomatic mission of Macau up until Beijing. And the lion arrived still alive, in bad shape, I think, but, but still alive. And the emperor was absolutely smashed and overwhelming when he saw the, uh, the lion. And so with a fate letter, with a, well, let's say a fate map, and the lion, the, uh, the major uh, uh, topics that this, um, 
that this uh, diplomatic mission of Macau had in mind, the agenda was uh, a, a tremendous success for, uh, for Macau. And finally, the building of the uh, Senado da Câmara in the mid-18th century. So when one look at it, it would be like a kind of a mandarin's house or something like that. So we are, in fact, truly in a Sino-Portuguese, uh, in a Eurasian uh, city, at least up until the mid or the end of the 18th century. Now, just for you to have an idea of what was, uh, how difficult it was to, to work for the survival of this uh, Eurasian uh, international port of Macau. In fact, everything was related to the maritime trade of Macau, and all of a sudden, Macau had to do diplomacy. Uh, nowadays, we use the word economic diplomacy, but in fact, uh, that's what Macau had done for uh, some centuries with lots of success. By the way, in Southeast Asia, with Portugal, with China, with uh, uh, Japan, and the four cycles of, uh, well, roughly speaking, uh, of the uh, Macanese uh, economy, which, in fact, uh, one was the uh, Southeast Asian cycle up until the mid-16th century, the second one, the Japanese cycle, basically on uh, raw silk, Chinese raw silk to the Japanese market, then bringing uh, silver into, the, into China up until the mid-17th century. Then again, back to base, it's the second Southeast Asian cycle up until the late 18th century, and finally, the uh, opium cycle. So, as you can see, to manage all this, to, uh, to play in uh, several, it's like to play chess in uh, several, uh, how do you say, uh, playing sets, yeah. In fact, so it's uh, absolutely uh, amazing and puzzling how the Senado da Câmara could do such uh, uh, political and economical diplomacy in so many uh, political and geographical scenarios. And for this, that's the, the third topic of my uh, lecture, of course, intelligence gathering was absolutely uh, essential for the survival of Macau. And once again, it was the Municipal Council who uh, ran the show and who was responsible for managing the uh, political and economic uh, diplomacy of uh, Macau. First of all, with China, Guangzhou and on the provincial level and Beijing on the imperial level. Lisbon, uh, of course, Portugal, Lisbon, Madrid, in between 1580 and 1640, and Goa also because the viceroy or the uh, governor in Goa was the representative of the king of Portugal, so it has to be dealt with also again. And I forgot to put here, I could also put Rio de Janeiro, because as you know, in uh, 1808, due to the Neapolitan Wars, the uh, court of Portugal had to move to Brazil. And so Macau, in fact, for uh, a dozen years or more, did have contact with uh, the Portuguese king that was living in the court that was by that time settled in uh, Brazil. They also had to, move to have contacts with Spanish Manila, of course, with the Japanese daimyo and uh, shogunate, with Southeast Asian kingdoms and sultanates, so we are talking about the old uh, Hindu-Buddhist-based uh, uh, kingdoms of Southeast Asia, especially in mainland Southeast Asia, but we are talking about a wide range of uh, uh, Islamic states in insular Southeast Asia. And so this means that even from the religious point of view, there was a lot of, let's say, sensitive issues that had to be considered, that had to be in the agenda of the Macanese uh, diplomats. And finally, I would say last but not least, with Dutch Batavia. Hmm. So Macau, well, the Municipal Council of Macau, in fact, to manage 
all this parallel diplomacy relied, first of all, on the uh, interpreters. And uh, let me, uh, in Portuguese, the word that uh, was used in Macau was Jurubasa, which means Jurubasa. In fact, it's a Malay, it's a Basa Indonesian name, means the expert in language. And uh, after 1620, uh, the Municipal Council was uh, felt the need to create a kind of a school of translators and interpreters. Mm -hmm. And so, in fact, there was some kind of technical formation in languages done by these uh, uh, translators. And most of, them were, most of them were Chinese, Macau-born or born or Cantonese, and they were considered by the municipal council our eyes and ears in Asia. And so, in fact, everything that they have seen or that they have heard about, they would immediately relate to the municipal council. And everything was uh, also completed with the private archives and libraries that several of the uh, mechanist traders were building up on their own due to their businesses, but due also to the interest of, uh, of, the, of the city in order to provide with uh, intelligence the municipal council. That's how we are approaching the constitution of the uh, Braga uh, collection, because in a way there are, uh, this is a tradition that uh, Jose Maria Braga is uh, continuing. So we, the municipal council had an archive and a library. And there was also, of course, the Jesuit, let's say, University of uh, St. Paul created in 1595. So as you see, there is a whole system. There is an old organization that was created, that was maintained by the municipal council in order to uh, keep his political and uh, economic Dip, uh, diplomacy running in all those scenarios that I have shown to you in the previous topic. So let's a little step a little step a little bit further uh, closer to the uh, uh, Braga collection, and just to uh, uh, rest your souls, we only have three uh, slides left, and so uh, don't be too worried because I'll have four or five minutes, and Marie, don't be worried, because I will stick to my 45 to 15 minutes. And uh, let's take a look at two examples, and one of them is a, a, a very important example, as you will see in a minute, uh, of what was going on in the two cases, let's say two case studies, of uh, private and archives and libraries from Macau uh, traders that in fact, in one moment or the other of their lives, belonged to the, uh, uh, to the uh, municipal council. And so in fact, there was a kind of an endogamic system. And the, the families were more or less uh, the same families that were running the Senado, the Camera, the municipal council. And let me give you two examples. One is uh, uh, Gamboa, the other one is Vicente Rosa. Gamboa is, an, is a Portuguese-born uh, uh, trader. He went to Macau in the uh, 70s or something like that. But Antonio Vicente Rosa is important not only because he's a Macanese. Actually, he's a third generation of uh, uh, Macau traders. And he has, in fact, uh, family ties with the, uh, with the Braga family. So th this, is, this is important because there is a Braga family connection. Antonio Vicente Rosa is an amazing character. He is uh, someone 
uh, I would say, absolutely uh, amazing from several points of views because he uh, managed to be uh, nominated, chosen, I don't know what word should I use, by several teams of Asia from mainland Southeast Asia up until insular to Southeast Asia to be nominated as minister, as a, a high-ranking official and so on. And when there was Christmas uh, mass or something in Macau, he wear the, 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 the suits, the official the, uh, apparel of uh, uh, Siam or uh, Vietnam. So he is an amazing, an absolutely amazing character. Both of them, Antonio José Gamboa and Vicente Rosa, had their own private archives and libraries. I will show you a, f uh, a few examples from the Vicente Rosa private. Now it's public, but before it was private uh, archive. And so they, in fact, both of them were operating in Southeast Asia, in China, in Europe, not only in Lisbon, but in Seville, in Amsterdam, in London, and so on, and even in the Indian uh, markets. So, in fact, they were running a system that involved diplomacy, family network, and uh, business. Let me show three examples of how important for, the, for them, for the, for the business, for their business, for the family network, but also for the city, for the International Port of Macau and for the International and for the Municipal Council, these private archives were important. These three uh, examples are uh, letters from Asian uh, teams, two of them uh, directly to Antonio Vicente Rosa, the other one to the King of Portugal. They were kept in the archive of uh, the private archive of Vicente Rosa, but due to uh, uh, several uh, historical accidents, they now they are in public collections in Portuguese uh, archives. The first one, it's a letter from the, the king of uh, Vietnam, dated 1786. Now it's in the overseas archives in Lisbon. But it's an original. Uh, it's uh, a letter written both to the king of Portugal and to Antonio Vicente Rosa, who managed to be a self-nominated ambassador of king of Portugal to uh, Vietnam. And uh, he uh, kept that letter that was, by the way, that had a copy, a translation in the uh, archives of the Lial Senado. The second one, it's a letter from the Sultan of Tranganu, nowadays um, uh, Malaysia, in uh, 1805. And uh, it's written in, uh, as you can see, in, uh, in Arabic. And in fact, it's written to the King of Portugal, but it mentions in several occasions the role of uh, uh, Vicente Rosa as a diplomat. The third one, it's from where I stand, from my point of view, the most amazing one. It's a Thai official document that is, that uh, uh, a colleague of mine found totally uh, uh, unpredictably in the municipal library of Viseu on the northern part of Portugal. And uh, it's, it's, it was written in 1786. And basically, it's something stating that, uh, okay, Mr. Vicente Rosa is coming next year to do trade in uh, uh, Siam. He will pay a little bit less of the customs duty due to his service to the king of Siam. But he managed to do a Portuguese translator where it says, no, 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 Mr. Vicente Rosa was nominated second prime minister by the King of Siam, and so presenting himself in the eyes of the King of Portugal as someone extremely important. So you can see that the problem of translation is also something that, well, could give us to another lecture. Well, let's move on. So fortunately, we do have these three documents because Vicente Rosa was able, was willing to do for his own service, for his, the, the business sake, and for the interests of the, of the city of Macau, 
his own private uh, archive. And so now, finally, for your relief, we go to uh, the uh, fourth uh, final topic of this lecture, in which I, in fact, what I, uh, th th that's basically a simple point, so back to Macaulay's work, it's to show that Jack, Jack, José Maria Braga, Jack Braga, in fact, followed along a multi-secular tradition in order to constitute not only a library, but also a private archive. And we now all can benefit from it. But in fact, in the uh, period that José Maria Braga built this collection, due to the inspiration, of course, of his father that started uh, definitely the collection, what we have is someone that was following a long tradition of, let's say, the Macanese, the Macanese elite of constituting a library and a private archive. And that archive, just to remind you, was private, of course, was from the family, but it was at the service of the community of the uh, Senado de Camera, and in fact was at work uh, for the survival of, uh, of Macau. At this, more or less at the same period, two other extremely important names, Pedro Nuas da Silva and José Vicente Jorge, these two also two important mechanisms, both of them repons responsible for the translation office that was dealing closely with the Senado da Câmara, especially for the uh, translation of the Chinese documents and the relation with, uh, uh, with China. And in a way, the most important uh, point of, of it all is once again, intelligence gathering. So, in fact, the private collection and the private archive was, in fact, also, uh, if you say, if you want to, was, in fact, intelligence gathering at the service of a family, of the business of someone, but, in fact, at the service of the uh, community and of uh, an international port. And let's see the different uh, patterns of documents we can find that the steward will, of course, uh, show us all the details um, afterwards. So we have cartography that is, of course, absolutely decisive for this intelligence gathering. We have cartography of Macau, Hong Kong, and uh, uh, South China. We have newspapers from Macau and, uh, uh, and Hong Kong. We have family papers, of course. These are relevant for the history of the family, but also, in a way, for the uh, history of a city. We have periodicals, and most of these periodicals are uh, what would could say the state of the art in Sinology and Oriental Studies of the period. We have, and this is uh, something with a purpose, of course, let me remind you, the close connection of the Society of Jesus, who always with Macau, and uh, I would like to know why, uh, maybe Stuart can explain to us, why uh, José Maria Braga chose to make uh, uh, transcriptions and summaries of all the uh, extremely uh, vast corpus of documents you can find in Portuguese archives, why he chose the Jesuits in Asia. Hmm? This and only this. And uh, these uh, Jesuits in Asia, which are in the Judah Library in Lisbon, are, well, it's, it's a documental corpus, an absolutely amazing Document. Fortunately, nowadays, Fundação Oriente in Lisbon do have them uh, in microfilm, and so we can we are able to see it in a more uh, in a more comfortable way. But in fact, up until the transcriptions done by José Maria Braga, no one has ever done that that job again. And finally, photographs of uh, Macau and Hong Kong. So, just to uh, sum up, 
with four or five final uh, remarks. First of all, I remind you that the Portuguese presence in Asia had two uh, main patterns, the official and the private, slash shadow empire. Macau was the best and the longest living example of the private pattern in close cooperation with private Chinese patterns. Third, intelligence gathering was essential for the survival of Macau between mid 16th and mid 19th century. And I wonder, is it not essential nowadays? And let me uh, just to uh, close with a, a short story. In back in 1998, when I was living in Macau, as you know, the transition of administration from Portugal to China happened on tw December 20, 1999, so one and uh, something year before that, uh, that uh, very important date for Macau. I was having lunch in, uh, with a member of the Macanese, uh, now this story can be told no, with no problem, uh, with a member of the Macanese uh, government. By the way, the only Macanese who was in the, in the Portuguese government of Macau by that time, and in the same restaurant, there was perhaps, this was the most famous Portuguese restaurant in Macau by that period. And all the Chinese officials visiting Macau always had lunch in that restaurant. And I was having lunch with this uh, gentleman, with this Macanese uh, gentleman. And I, I noticed that uh, in one table, close to our table, there was some Chinese official from Macau and some Chinese official coming from mainland. And I said, uh, are you, as you say in Portuguese, would you like to be a fly and to listen what they are saying? And I said, no, 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 George, there's no need. If I know who they are, I know what they are saying. <laughs> and so, in fact, the uh, intelligence gathering at work uh, at his best. Huh? So José María Braga followed a multi-secular tradition of Macau's political and business elite. I hope, Stuart, you agree with, uh, with me. Together, information and knowledge was absolutely essential for the survival of Macau still today. And finally, the Braga collection in the NLA. I was telling someone uh, before this lecture that makes me somehow jealous that you have this collection here. <laughs> it's an extraordinary, perhaps the last one done by uh, the Macanese member of the elite of Macau, case study of intelligence gathering in Macau as an international port and a global city. Thank you to you all. Thank you so much. Professor Shantosh Alsh, thank you so much. We learned so much from that illuminating and panoramic uh, lecture from someone who has such an extraordinary command of the period, the geography, and the politics. Thank, thank you. Now the second uh, part of our afternoon is with Dr. Stuart Braga, nephew of Jose Maria Braga. Stuart is an educator, he is a writer, he is a book collector, he is an author of several Australian military biographies and of other books and articles on educational and church history. His most recent publications are concerned with the cultural history of Hong Kong and Macau, where his family links go back three centuries. Stuart holds degrees from four Australian universities including a PhD from the Australian National University. 
Stuart is a keen and loyal supporter of the library, and I would ask you to please welcome him to introduce us to the Braga collection, its content, its significance, and its acquisition. Welcome, Stuart. Excellently, Paula Cunralvis, Ambassador of the Portuguese Republic, Mrs. Philomena Cunralvis, Anne-Marie Schwertlich, Director General of the National Library, Professor Georges Santoralvis, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Anne-Marie, for your kind words of introduction. The most important thing you said is that I'm a keen and loyal supporter of the National Library and very proud to be so. <clears throat> Where would we be? without the National Library of Australia. What a vast and boundless treasure this is, not just to the nation and to the world, but to each and every individual user. <coughs> Will it work? Yes. Jack Braga was certainly of this view. He was thrilled that his collection came here, and he was proud not just of his own collection, but also of the great library of which it has become a part. Jack, Uncle Jack, was 39 when this picture was drawn in 1936. 39 is a good age for a book collector. You have a settled view of what you want to achieve in your field, and you have many years collecting ahead of you. I have been 39 for several decades, <laughs> and I plan to continue to be 39. Jack retained that youthful enthusiasm for many more years, despite the crisis of the Pacific War that overwhelmed East Asia a few years later. It, sapped, it stopped his acquisition of books completely for at least five years but it opened a new and important field, the acquisition of everything he could lay his hands on that documented the refugee crisis in Macau, whose population had grown from about 150,000 to 500,000. Think of that overwhelming figure. And as far as he could, he also collected material relating to Hong Kong under Japanese occupation. He faced other great challenges during the war, how to care for his aged parents and eight siblings who arrived in Macau from Hong Kong in several stages from 1942 to 1943, destitute and ill. How could he assist the war effort as a British agent? I don't know, because his files were closed for 50 years until 2017. They're available in exactly 100 days' time the 1st of January, 2017, but the library is closed that day. <laughs> How could he educate his seven children at a time <clears throat> when opportunities had ceased altogether and in a culture that discouraged girls' educa education beyond elementary level? His eldest daughter, Carol, who lives now in San Francisco, had this to say about her father. I have him to thank for his encouragement as I grew up. I was liberated, and I didn't know it. 
It was at his lap that I learned the qualities of love, generosity, and care that cannot be measured. Now, they were qualities that Carol Braga then gave to her colleagues and patients throughout her dedicated service in women's health as professor of gynecology at the University of California as a respected specialist in ovarian cancer who has received much recognition for her work. Jack himself would be given two awards by the President of Portugal. His growing reputation led in 1949 to the award of Cavaliero in the Ancient Order of St. James of the Sword. In 1988, he was posthumously awarded the high rank of Grand Officer as the Order of Prince Henry the Navigator. I've been asked to give an introduction to the J.M. Braca collection. Let me briefly discuss several themes of the collection, which will be represented by a small selection of a large treasure. Jack's collection is a gift that keeps on giving as you find out more about it. The cliché certainly applies here. And I shall outline here several items that are fundamental to the collection, both in their importance and their antiquity. The display in the Nankivel room upstairs showcases a few examples of his collecting. Portuguese exploration, obviously, in books and maps. We see his willingness to collect pamphlets concerning unpalatable truths. There are instances of the way Jack built up his research materials and how he used his collection for public purposes. There is the product of the very fruitful co collaboration between Jack Braga and Charles Boxer. There are a few of his varied pictures and maps, which he saw as important facets of a wide-reaching collection. If you look closely at one of them, John Speed's 1676 map of Tartary, you'll find that just north of the Great Wall of China, they had discovered what they called asbestos. They used the Latin, not the Greek form that we do. Asbestos, which they wove into clothes that did not burn in the fire. Several centuries ago, they didn't know that this wonderful mineral would kill you. There it is on the map. Naturally, printing fascinated him because the craft of printing was a large part of his family history. Three books represent the intersection between the two objects of his fascination. There are three paintings recording Macau in the late 1930s. Presently, Jack saw that Macau would soon change beyond recognition and he commissioned several artists to record it. I hope to use a number of them to illustrate my next book, A History of Macau, which is being published in November. There are two pictures that might best be called propaganda posters, drawn to accompany talks that Jack gave to schools and community groups in the late 30s and early 40s. They were drawn by a German aristocrat, Baron von Reichenau, described by Jack simply as a German refugee and possibly related to a field marshal in the Reichswehr. The last two items are also from World War II. There are newspapers published in Hong Kong and Macau in 1945, examples of a rich but little-known part of the collection. In the Nankivel Room, there will be notes 
accompanying the exhibits, which will explain their significance, including the major and important pictures and books, as well as the easily overlooked smallest item, a little lapel badge with a circular Union Jack on it, and also the drawings by the intriguing Baron von Reichenauer, who seems to have chosen Macau as the ideal place to hide in bad times. Now, in this introduction, I cannot cover all of it. However, I shall discuss four items that are fundamental, both in their antiquity and in their importance. The first is the ordinal of the divine office of the Order of Cistercians, the monastery of Santa Maria de Albacasa. This is the bedrock of the J.M. Braga collection. It comes from the Alcabasa Monastery, one of the great buildings of medieval Europe. Begun in the 12th century, it remains, I'm told, the largest church in Portugal, vast, simple to the point of austerity in its architecture, and breathtakingly beautiful. It is on the World Heritage Register. If you're ever in Portugal, do not fail to visit it. It was built by the Cistercian Order, very strict in its discipline, at first adhering steadfastly to the rule of St. Benedict. Later, the monastery grew slack over the centuries. Next to the church is a huge kitchen the monks did rather well. By the late 18th century, the monks had come to live too well, and the early simplicity and austerity were compromised, and the monks were finally swept away in an anti-clerical reaction. Why did Jack collect this priceless manuscript from the early 15th century? The monastery was founded by Alfonso, the first king of Portugal in, 15, in, in 1153. And it was closely linked to the monarchy from then on. The library at Alcabasa was one of the largest Portuguese medieval libraries, probably included this book, which contains the ordinal, the daily services observed by the monks when the monastery was at the height of its influence. <coughs> More directly, the great thrust of Portuguese exploration in the 15th century had as one of its main springs not only royal patronage, the patroado, but also a strong missionary zeal, the direct product of several centuries of the Reconquista, the Reconquest, when the king and the church strove together against the Moors. How did Jack acquire it? Unfortunately, he did not keep acquisition files didn't want his wife to know how much money he spent on books. <laughs> but his correspondence files make it clear that following a visit to Lisbon in 1952, <clears throat> he maintained close and cordial relations with several leading Lisbon booksellers. In selecting a small selection of his 7,000 plus books, hundreds of maps and scores of pictures I was struck by the careful way in which he'd laid the foundations of his library in a small but significant group of early printed books, which I shall now discuss. Jack chose these books with great care as foundation books. I have tried to follow his thinking in these foundation stones. Last year, 
At an APSIG meeting, we saw an incunabulum, that is a book printed before the year 1500. It was St. Augustine's De Civitati Dei, 1489. Jack had only one incunabulum, only one. That's one more than I have, one more than anybody else here has, I would think. The three important early printed books we will be looking at today upstairs are firstly, The Spiritual Exercises of Ignatius Loyola, a set of Christian meditations, prayers, and mental exercises written by St. Ignatius, the founder of the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits, with the intention of helping the earnest Christian disciple in a personal commitment to follow Jesus. The quest for personal holiness has always been fundamental to sincere Christian belief, and this book has for centuries been the cornerstone of Jesuit training. Why did Jack collect it? Because the Jesuits, as we have heard, were present in Macau almost from the beginning. Macau was the base for their work throughout East Asia. This book, in a 1606 printing, is contemporary with the high point of their work in China and Japan. Second is Arnoldus Montanus, Atlas Japonensis, and this is the title. Being remarkable addresses by a way of embassy from the East India Company of the United Provinces to the Emperor of Japan, Englished and adorned with above a hundred several sculptures by John Ogilby. That, of course, is the English translation, 1670. Loyola was Italian. Arnold Berg, that's Montanus in Latin, was Dutch. This is a compilation of descriptions by emissaries of the Dutch East India Company and their encounters with Japanese and Portuguese, dealing with Japan, its land and its people. The plates in this book represent a high point in book illustration in the 17th century. Why did Jack collect it? The Dutch gave the Japanese military assistance in excluding the Portuguese from Japan in the 1630s. Any knowledge of Japan for more than two centuries reached the rest of the world through Dutch eyes only. The third is an Italian book, a classical text printed in 1574. The leading publisher and printer of the Venetian High Renaissance, Aldus Manutius, set up a definite scheme of book design. He produced the first italic type. He introduced small and handy pocket editions of the classics, and he developed several innovations in book design. Why did Jack collect it? The Aldine Press raised the bar for printers everywhere. Its standard was normative for perhaps two centuries. Jack had a keen interest in the history of printing, and he wrote an important paper on Western printing in the Far East from 1565 to 1836. It is now online through the library's catalogue. Notes on the rest of the display await you in the Nan Kibble Room. Now, I've been asked to answer this question. Why did the J. M. Braga collection <coughs> come to Australia? As this is the 50th anniversary 
of the acquisition of this, the library, it seems appropriate to answer that question if I can. For some years it seemed that it would always be in Hong Kong. As a small boy, I was allowed just once to enter Jack's library. It occupied more than a dozen large bookcases in a big room that was equipped with one of the very few domestic dehumidifiers then in Hong Kong. The room felt cold. I'd never been in an air-conditioned room. I remember the huge bookcases towering over my head. And I realized from this picture that they weren't so tall after all, <laughs> because I was then only about four feet high. Jack's best years were the two decades after World War II. Although he and his family had experienced severe privations in Macau like most others, Jack never lost his vigor and strong community spirit. These continued to flourish in post-war Hong Kong, where he moved in 1946. For the next 20 years, he lived and worked there, running Braga and Company, an import-export business, though his friend, Geoffrey Bonsall, deputy librarian of Hong Kong University, whimsically suggested that his book collection was really his business, absorbing most of his time and interest, while the business was his hobby, to which he gave whatever little time was left. So, of course, he never became rich. His passion for book collecting and historical research dominated his life. Residence in Hong Kong from 1946 gave a new dimension to his collection, which now extends to the history of British activity in the Far East from the late 18th to the mid 20th century. In addition, his determination to record the history of Portuguese expansion took a new turn, and he now added many transcriptions of papers documenting the activities of early navigators and missionaries. In 1952, he visited Lisbon and embarked on a project of securing transcriptions of the Jesuits in Asia manuscripts in the Judah Library of Lisbon. As we've heard, he was the first to do so. He regarded these manuscripts as the most important part of his collection. Jack was active in the affairs of body founded after World War II to promote the cultural interests of the Macanese community in Hong Kong. It was called the Portuguese Institute of Hong Kong. It's a small group of people who met to, bear, to hear papers on Portuguese history. It published an occasional bulletin with articles in Portuguese and English, including several by Jack. Then they published his significant book, The Western Pioneers and the Discovery of Macau, also online through the library's catalogue. By the late 1940s, the continuing collaboration with Charles Boxer brought about a substantial improvement in his scholarship. Boxer sent Jack several of his publications for comment. Jack produced several scholarly papers, notably the beginnings of printing in Macau. For several years, he prepared an extensive bibliography for the official Hong Kong Annual Report. He was regarded by the Portuguese community as the unofficial historian of Macau. He was determined to secure for his children the opportunity to study medicine, which he had not had himself. Hoping for quick profits from his business, 
He thought of sending them to Edinburgh to study medicine, but this dream soon vanished. His business didn't do well enough. An application for scholarships from Hong Kong University was turned down on the mistaken grounds that the Braga family was well-to-do. Well Quite wrong, because he'd spent too much money on books. A remarkable Hong Kong philanthropist, Sir Robert Hotong, stepped in. He had seen Jack's work in Macau firsthand during the war, the intelligence gathering that we've heard about, and he valued his work for British intelligence. <clears throat> Sir Robert paid for three of Jack's daughters to go to Hong Kong University, two studying medicine and the third arts. It was one of the best investments Sir Robert ever made. A fourth daughter became a trained nurse. In 1952, Jack sent his three sons to Australia, where one became a doctor, another an electrical engineer, the third had a long career in the Commonwealth Public Service. All seven of his children did well in life. It was an amazing achievement for a man who undertook this large task in his early 50s with no accumulated wealth and a passion for collecting. All the while, he continued to add to his impressive library, carefully housed and cared for. Now we come to the Australian bit. By the 1960s, six of his seven children were in Australia and he planned to follow them as soon as suitable arrangements could be made. He hoped to obtain a position that would enable him to work full-time in his beloved library. Political troubles in Hong Kong and Macau associated first with the Korean War in the 1950s and then the Cultural Revolution in China in the 1960s hastened his decision. 1966, Jack sold his library to the National Library of Australia for £10,000 sterling. Quite a good price at that time. You will see in the display upstairs one book that is presently in the Sydney Booksellers catalogue for $25,000. I think it's still for sale. You can get it tomorrow morning. <laughs> he came to Canberra, where he worked at the library from December 1968 until January 1972, but his health was already failing. He set himself the task of translating into English Bishop Gouvier's Asia Estrema, the most important of the Jesuits in Asia manuscripts, hoping that it might be published by the library. But he was able to finish only three of the six books. The twilight years were sad and prolonged. Afflicted by Parkinson's disease, Jack went with his wife, Augusta, to San Francisco, where they lived with Carol. She gave her parents devoted care until their deaths 16 and 19 years later. Jack died on the 27th of April, 1988, aged 90. Jack Braga was a remarkable man. He lived in Hong Kong until 1924. Macau then became his home for the next 22 years. Jack worked there diligently as a teacher and as manager of the water company, which under his direction completed a new water supply, without which the vast influx of refugees in World War II could not have been received. 
He never had sufficient means to support his growing passion for books, pictures, and maps, yet he persisted. Despite all the setbacks caused by economic depression, war, and business difficulties, he left a fine legacy, a collection of abiding value, not only to Australia, where most of his family had made their home, but also to a steadily growing body of international users. Moreover, he left behind him in the little Portuguese territory whose history he'd done so much to promote, a name that continues to be held in honor and respect. Now, there's one last important thing that I need to say to everybody here. Keep on being 39. Keep on buying books. Book collecting is a civic duty. And you were very pleased to hear that Philomena has a new book being published next week after eight years of research. It's going to be worth buying. Thank you. We could have had no better person to introduce Jack Braga, his collection and his passions. I note that Stuart shop stopped short of one exhortation to you, and that was to hide the price of your purchases from your partner. <laughs> now,